What if the speed of light was 30 miles an hour? What if Earth had two suns? Which cereal mascot would win in a what fight? What if everyone lived underground? What if, it rained what if money grew what on if trees? What if pigs could fly? I don't know if that would actually happen. It's much easier to store a unicycle than to store a horse. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Absurd Hypotheticals, the show where we overthink dumb questions so you don't have to. I'm your host, Marcus Lehner, and I'm joined here today by Chris Yee and Ben Storms. Say hi, guys. Hey, I'm Chris. Hey, I'm Ben. Guys, you have made me watch a movie, which is not what I usually do with my time, because we have a whole bunch of movie-related questions today, all related to Mr. Tom Cruise. Did you actually watch the movie? I did actually watch the movie. Ooh, special occasion. Oh, did you watch your movie, Chris? No, I didn't. <laughs> I hadn't watched mine either. <laughs> I've already seen it like a billion times. To explain what we did is we all picked a Tom Cruise movie and did a question based around said Tom Cruise movie. Um, I had actually seen my movie before. I, I um, But there were many very famous movies that I'm like, oh, I should probably have seen more of these. <laughs> <laughs> He's uh, Tom Cruise has been in a lot of movies. He's prolific. We've done this once before with Keanu Reeves. I think this is the second time we've done this. Yeah. Yeah, I think I didn't rewatch The Matrix for that one and got a lot of things wrong. <laughs> yeah, you really did. It was actually yeah. pretty impressive how many things you got wrong. Like, with the mechanics of how The Matrix worked. <laughs> yeah. yeah. like the big picture stuff, like, that you would get from watching the movie then. Um, but I'm like, I've seen The Matrix. I was, like, so obsessed with The Matrix, like, back then. I was doing all my cool, you know, making all the, the punchy sound effects. I'm like, I know this thing, but that was my... You know, preteen, whatever that movie came out, filled brain. God, I hope I didn't date myself there. And by that, I mean, I hope I wasn't making cool Matrix noises when I was too far into my (laughs) (laughs) mid-teens. But yeah, no, we have some cool questions. We each picked a question based on the movie, so we're all doing, we're doing three different questions. Ben, why don't you go ahead and get us started, because I don't have anything else to explain, and I'm stuck. Yeah, that's fair. Uh, So I, I took a crack at Top Gun. Top Gun, if you're not familiar with it, is a movie about planes and the people who fly them. It's from 1986. Uh, specifically, it's about Navy fighter pilots who fly the uh, F-14A off of an aircraft carrier. Uh, obviously starring Tom Cruise, also has Val Kilmer in it, and also other actors, but those are the main two ones that I knew about. So they're the ones I'm going to mention. And a new one, a new one just came out. The new one just came out, and although it hasn't come out when we're recording this, from what I understand, it's pretty good. So I probably have seen it by the time this episode comes out. And hopefully I think it's pretty good, but I'm not recommending it yet because I haven't seen it. So if it's good, I recommended it. If it's not, I said it was bad. Just go with that. Anyway, Top Gun. So I was, I was looking for a Top Gun question. I couldn't think of any for a while because it's not a particularly, like, you know, fantastical movie. It's just kind of about, like the interpersonal relationships of fighter pilots. We already know it's possible for planes to fly. So Yes, that is that is one that we have not actually covered on the show, but has been demonstrated many times in my own life and probably most people's lives as well. Uh, excuse me, I, I did an episode about sharks flying planes, so <laughs> you're you right. Know, give we, us some credit. We actually have technically covered that on this show as well. You're right. Answer, yes, sharks can fly planes. <laughs> there we go. So ironically it's funny you bring that up because i actually wound up going in a somewhat similar direction because all the characters in the movie being fighter pilots have call signs right so you know call sign is just like a cool like nickname that pilots call each other for you know communication purposes you know it's easier than saying someone's actual name to call them for example maverick tom cruise's character's call sign 
Because the question I decided to answer was, uh, what if the Top Gun pilots were actually literally their call signs? Oh, my. <laughs> With the sort of sub-questions of, one, how well could they fly an F-14A Tomcat? And two, whether or not they're flying their F-14A Tomcat, how effective would they be at destroying an enemy jet? Because those are kind of their two main purposes of these fighter pilots is flying jets and destroying other jets. So how good are they at these two tasks? I can already hear how pleased you are with yourself for this question. I am so I, – I told you guys this in advance. This is easily, without a doubt, and I know what how big a statement this is, the stupidest thing I've ever done for this show. In all of the 171 episodes, that's a lot of episodes. Zero question. Dumbest thing I've ever done. <laughs> We're starting with Tom Cruise's character. Tom Cruise's call sign is uh, Maverick. So first I had to figure out what actually is a Maverick. The definition is one who is unconventional or does not abide by the rules. But the actual, like, source of the word is a guy. It's this guy, Samuel Maverick, who is a, a 19th century rancher, lawyer, and politician in Texas. Um, back before Texas was actually part of the U.S. during, like, the, the Texas Revolution. And the origin of the word Maverick, how we use it now, is that uh, he refused to brand his cattle. And he said that he didn't brand his cattle because he didn't want to inflict pain on them. But a lot of other ranchers thought that his actual motivation was that let him just say that any unbranded cattle he found were his and he could claim them. But there was also a lot of uh, accounts of his like, you know, life basically said that he didn't really care about ranching at all and did a really bad job growing his herd ever. So it probably wasn't that he was probably just lazy and didn't want to brand them. That's kind of where the word comes from, is that it's someone who kind of, like, goes against established norms. What a lame story to have that cool of a thing named after you. I know. Uh, fun fact, also, his uh, grandson was another politician who created the word gobbledygook. So you got that, you know, it sort of runs <laughs> in the family. I didn't get the full story on that one. I'm sorry. That one I just saw on the Wikipedia page. But he was a pretty cool guy. He was one of the signers of the Texas Declaration of Independence. He was a landowner in and around San Antonio. He was actually at part of the Battle of Alamo. And then he wound up serving on the Texas House of Representatives and eventually as mayor of San Antonio as well. And when he was building his house in 1852, he found 13 of the 21 cannons used during the Battle of the Alamo that had been, like, buried by retreating Mexican soldiers. Uh, and they actually were donated to the Alamo Museum where they're still on display. So... If you ever go to the Alamo. He's like, oh, these cannons? I, I don't see a brand on them. These are mine. I, I actually, <laughs> I had the exact same thought. I was like, oh, yeah, this this tracks. This makes sense. <laughs> Maverick has made it th made it big by just like being like, wow, does nobody want this? Okay, I'll take it. Exactly. Ma Mayor of San Antonio, does nobody else want this? Yeah. I'll just grab it. Why not? <laughs> sure. That's a nice declaration there. I may as well sign it. Yeah, come on. Texas House of Representatives, I'm in. <laughs> <laughs> so our important questions here, right? Could he fly an F-14A? Probably not. He's from the 1800s. However, I will say that he is a human man, which puts him surprisingly far ahead on this list, actually, um, of being, in terms of being able to fly a jet. So he would not know how, but he does at least possess all of the necessary, like, limbs and general intelligence to fly a jet. So just drop him a minute. Probably can't, but not too far off. He's at least, you know ergonomically there could you destroy an enemy jet if he was in an f-14 probably not once again i don't think he could fly a plane just naturally um, but as mentioned he did have 13 cannons and although it wouldn't be easy if you could hit a jet with a cannon the cannon would win that fight so 
how he probably would not be as good as Tom Cruise's character Maverick, but he would actually be surprisingly decent in our two categories of being able to fly an F-14 and destroy an enemy jet. So not too bad. Uh, moving on, we're going to go to Goose, who was Maverick's radar intercept officer and best friend. You know what a Goose is, I hope, I would guess. If you don't, it's a roughly 10-pound, surprisingly aggressive bird. That honks. I'm not going to lie. I, I, yeah, they honk. They do honk. That's true. Uh, I don't really have any other Goose facts. I figured that Goose on its own probably spoke for itself. You know, I think that's just fair. If you have questions, they're on the internet. You can find them. They're, yeah, they're birds. So on to our important questions. Can a goose fly an F-14A? No. Uh, can a goose destroy a jet? This is where we get to sort of the interesting question. There's actually a lot of research on this. Not gooses specifically, but birds in general. Because that is actually a, you know, reasonably big threat for planes is hitting a bird in flight. And specifically, I found a uh, an, an article from the Wildlife Society Bulletin from 2000 called Ranking the Hazard Level of Wildlife Species to Aviation, where they basically um, they found a database that just had reported incidents of planes hitting wildlife, along with the like reports that said it damaged the wildlife, wildlife and what the actual like, cost was when that was available. Geese were not the most damaging wildlife, but they were the third most. So they're actually pretty damaging. I'm going to tell you guys right now, you will not guess what the most damaging wildlife in terms of being struck by planes was. I can guarantee it. I will give you each three guesses and you will not guess the actual answer. Uh, so it's going to be a weird one. Does that imply that it's not bird? It's not a bird. Is this a list of birds or a list of animals? I said wildlife. Okay. Wildlife. Salmon. No, that okay. <laughs> I, I know I, as a guess. Man, I know I said it was weird, but you may have been going a little too far there, dude. <laughs> uh, is it bats? It bats. is not no, they bats. They they know the, the heck to stay away from those. Yeah, they have they have sonar. Like they, they they did see that coming. You know, is it somehow squirrels? Mosquitoes. It is not squirrels or mosquitoes. I don't know how either of those would work. <laughs> Me neither. But you said it's weird, so I'm not gonna guess any freaking birds. Okay, you're thinking a little bit too weird, maybe just like slightly less weird. Owls. No, that's it was kind of weird, I guess. It's like okay, Marcus, do you have anything? Uh, pigeons. No, as a bird, you just you just okay. We <laughs> this segment didn't go as I thought. It was somehow anyway. It's deer. It, inexplicably, it's deer, and I'm guessing it just has to entirely be on like takeoff and or landing. Yeah, I, th- I, I would. I would imagine so. <laughs> Otherwise, it's Santa Claus's be, uh, deer. Santa Claus is very <laughs> sad. Yeah. Um. But no, yeah, uh, apparently deer in terms of, and like, to be fair, the way they measure it was just based off of like how many strikes were reported versus how many noted damage. And obviously, if you hit a deer with a plane, that's going to do a lot more damage than hitting like, for example, an owl, which is listed in this list, Chris, with a plane. How high on the list? Twelfth uh, in number of strikes. Pretty uncommon in damage. Only So 171 strikes and only 22 with damage. Can you uh, can you scroll down and get us a stat on salmon? Uh, salmon were not <laughs> listed. The only the only other non bird animal on here is um, I just want to make sure this is true. Uh, yeah, coyotes apparently uh, forty nine times. Is that how four of them damaged the plane? How does that work? You know what? I'm not going to dwell on that. Point being, of the five hundred thirty two times that a goose struck a plane, two hundred eighty three noted damage. I don't know how much damage, 
I do know that generally the way that a bird can really mess the plane, particularly a jet, is by going into the engine and jamming it and causing it to, you know, not jet, I guess. <laughs> I love how so many of your sentences start off so confident, <laughs> and then on the simplest bit at the end, you, <laughs> you fall apart. Yeah, it's a problem. Anyway, point being, can a goose destroy an enemy jet? Yes. Yes, it can. I'm actually more confident in the goose than in Samuel Maverick. So we got that. Finally, last of the pilots we're going to talk about today is Iceman, who is Val Kilmer's character, who is uh, Maverick's rival at the Top Gun Academy. Um, there's really only two ways to take this one, this Iceman, literally. Uh, one is a cryogenically frozen man. The idea of cryogenic freezing is to freeze someone, generally someone with like a terminal disease or something, so that in the future they can be thawed out and cured of whatever disease they have that we can't cure now. Uh, and the advantage here is that man could be anyone. It could be a fighter pilot, you know, it would, that would be perfect. You know, just thaw him out and you throw him in there and he goes and it's, it's perfect. One problem with that is that uh, current cryogenic freezing technology straight up does not work because the way that we freeze a human down to that temperature just like destroys the tissue. It like obliterates the cell membranes. There is not a way to like freeze someone currently that keeps them intact. Uh, there was a story in the article I was reading that said that they did an experiment in a lab where they just tried to basically freeze an entire pig heart. Or sorry, they had a frozen pig heart. They were trying to bring it back to uh, a, you know, not frozen temperature fast enough to bring it back to life without it going through the whole, like, fine process. And literally the heart cracked in half. It's not good. It does not work, the technology. So what we have is just a dead man and a dead guy cannot fly an F-14A or destroy an enemy jet by any means that I can think of. But the other possibility that we could have, taking Iceman literally, is there's a character from X-Men named Iceman, who's the guy who can make ice. You may have seen him in some sort of X-Men material before. Who, one, I believe has flown the X-Men plane before, so pilot. And two, he's also a super powerful mutant and can create ice and is apparently, like, basically unkillable. He can, like, turn himself into ice and then reform from that ice even if it shatters i don't know it seems really broken but that's kind of how these things go yeah ice is pretty brittle it's yeah but but like then apparently he can be like a hard ice too i don't know it seemed very comics bullshit but it was fine whatever point being if that is who who iceman literally is is iceman from the x-men uh he is far better than val kilmer i'm gonna put that out there right now um it would easily be the best of all these pilots at both flying an f-14a and destroying an enemy jet so I guess in conclusion, if the Top Gun pilots were literally their call signs, they would generally be worse unless one of them is a mutant who can make ice and also fly planes. Do you think Iceman would be disappointed that the team he gets sent off with includes a goose? Uh, yes, <laughs> I would think so. That seems very likely. Uh, yeah, so that's what I had. Uh, Marcus, what did you do? Uh, yeah, so the, the Tom Cruise movie that I picked was War of the Worlds, the uh, 2005 uh, Steven Spielberg remake, because that's the one he was in. If you have not seen War of the Worlds, spo this may be the least spoiler tag <laughs> spoiler tag ever, because <laughs> the original War of the Worlds came out in... I mean, the book was... It's an old book. Yes, yeah, an old 1953 book. film. Yeah, and the book was definitely before that. I think there was a radio show between the book and the movie first year as in 1897 so if you have there not you if you have not picked up if you've been waiting um in a spoiler free bunker for 130 years turn off the podcast yeah it's literally public domain now you have no excuse anyhow 
plot aliens ascend to Earth and start murdering a bunch of people with giant tripod robots. They're basically invincible, but then abruptly die because they can't handle the bacteria and microorganisms in the air, and they all just die with no input from anybody else. The movie just follows one deadbeat dad who, like, sort of takes care of his kids. He, I, I think he loses one of them. I was half paying attention when I rewatched the movie, but one of them, I think, went into the military and didn't come back. I don't know. <laughs> I remember a scene with a train that's on fire, and that's most of what I remember from that movie. Which is great, because that that, that scene has literally nothing to do with anything. Like, they're no, really just yeah, moving literal. with the people, and then a train just goes through super on fire. And they keep moving. And then they just yeah, keep walking. Kind of they literally ignore it and keep walking. I remember Tom Cruise running a lot with people exploding into clothes around him. Uh, yeah, that happens. Yeah. That's true. Good movie. But if, before I move on to my actual question, of course, every time I watch a sci-fi something movie, I'm going to fact check stuff. Did just one fact check for this one. In this movie, which is actually unique to the War of the Worlds storytelling, the robots, the giant tripods were always in the Earth, and they just come and, like, basically shoot lightning down on one spot and then, like, shoot their little shuttle pod into the robot that's already underground, and then it pops up out of the ground. But basically, it like got reawakened by lightning strikes. So my question was, okay, so these things are, you know, generally some depth into the ground. Would you be able to reactivate them with lightning? So I was curious to see how deep lightning penetrated into the Earth. Uh, it turns out it goes pretty far down. In fact, there have been reports of miners that are hundreds of feet underground feeling electric shocks from lightning strikes on the surface. Which I haven't heard, I didn't see any minor deaths from getting directly electrocuted. Because that would be, like, the most bullshit way to die. <laughs> You're, like, 250 feet underground, and you get, like, hit by lightning. Like, that's <laughs> bullshit. But there have been deadly methane explosions caused by lightning hitting, penetrating into mines. Sometimes, like, it's a, little, it's a little tricky on how far is natural, like, in a natural, like, stone setting. Because a lot of the travel in the mines is because there's a lot of, like, mine rails and wires and electrical equipment that gives it a more, like, a conduit path. But it seems like a good few hundred feet is what you can expect for lightning penetration into the ground. So, fact checked, fact approved. You could reactivate an old robot if lightning will do it. So, my question, very simply, was, okay, well, the aliens just went up and died. What would I do if I had a giant tripod? Tripod, let's start with, let's start with the abilities of, of said tripod. Ability number one, they're big. They're like 100 feet tall. Ability number two, they can make a big noise. That, that, like that alarm sound that apparently also is a creative choice between different remakes of the uh, of the tripods on the different War of the World adaptations. Apparently one of them is just like a bunch of like high-pitched like screeching. Yeah, that which... sounds right. <laughs> I'm like... The Tom Cruise one was kind of more blommy, right? Yeah, it's like, it's like, and I think it was like, I think the book is like a loo, which mm, would be like, right. would match that, like a deep like foghorn type sound almost. Mm-hmm. They are shielded from attack so they shoot all these missiles and stuff and they just hit like this force field around it they have the uh what you guys mentioned before the i'm calling it the flesh beam which i think is just a heat ray that vaporizes people but leaves like their clothes and stuff intact it has like fertilizer arms and an extraction hose so one of the things that they do with the people is that they like pick up the people and harvest them and then grind them into dust or you know suck their blood out of them and then use that to fertilize this like red vines that they're letting grow around the planet they're like almost like doing like a little bit of terraforming fertilizer arms conjured a weird image (laughs) Mm, a little bit yeah it is weird it's exactly as weird as your images so good good work (laughs) they can be underwater there's a bunch that pop up from under the water and in addition to their big three their tripods they have big three like you know legs they also have a bunch of little legs 
that descend down and, you know, grapple people and pull them up into like a little containment unit. So what do I do in my real life with this giant tripod? There, there's a lot of options that you can do, which is a big, old, powerful machine. So I want to look more at what made this robot unique, which I consider to be its many tentacles and its blood extraction capabilities. So we're going to go back to the weird fertilizer extraction hose. Basically, it just is able to, like, it's a big, long arm with, like, a little needle on it. It can stab something and drain the blood out of it. So what good is that in the real world? Turns out, blood can be valuable. For an initial point of comparison, human blood is worth about $1,500 a gallon, according to Google. If you ever need, <laughs> need some cash, I guess. <laughs> but that is not what we'll be harvesting. I don't know if we talked about this before, but horseshoe crab blood is one of the most valuable bloods. Also one of the most valuable liquids, period, on the planet. Horseshoe crab blood is worth $60,000 a gallon. But why, though? So, horseshoe crab blood contains a special clotting agent. Uh, it's used in medical facilities to make a concoction called Limulus Amoebocyte Lysate, or LAL. LAL is cool because LAL lets you know whether a vaccine or medical tool is contaminated with bacteria, like E. coli or salmonella or something. And basically, if you introduce a drop of this LAL agent into a medical equipment you're testing, any bacteria, it'll form a jelly cocoon around, like, any bacteria in that sample to, like, to sensitivity of, like, one part in a trillion, which is kind of neat, but do we really need to harvest horseshoes, you know, horseshoe crab blood to do this? The alternative that they had was they would just inject the vaccines they were testing into, like, a huge number of rabbits and then see if the rabbits got sick. And this is just, like, you can test one thing in one vial and it'll immediately tell you if there's, you know, bad bacteria in it. So we are still using horseshoe crab blood today. Each year, the U.S. harvests blood from about 600,000 horseshoe crabs for medical purposes. So we're going to see if we can get in on the supply side of this shindig and cash in on our horseshoe crab blood. The way they harvest them now is basically two main methods. One of them is literally just like hand harvesting them near the shore. Like you just have people that go around and pick them up off of the beach and the shallows and you collect them that way. And then the other is uh, net trawling down at the seafloor. So you go out a little bit, you drop a net on the seafloor, you pick up everything and anything, and then you pick out the horseshoe crabs and throw everything else back, which of course is generally, it's still done, but it's generally not super eco-friendly. So what if we use our robot? Because one, we can go underwater. Two, it does have flashlights. I didn't mention the flashlights, but it does have lights so you can find the horseshoe crabs. And then it can either pick up or just directly extract the blood without ever having to like leave or go to a lab or anything. You just have like all these tentacles doing your thing for you already. So I want to look at how many horseshoe crabs could I harvest with my giant tripod. The largest horseshoe crab population, uh, I don't know if it's the world of the US, forgot to check, uh, in Delaware Bay, where an estimated 725,000 horseshoe crabs live, which is great because that is a bit more than the annual demand. So if we can harvest the whole Delaware Bay, we can supply all the medical facilities with horseshoe crab blood. So let's say we can extract this blood continuously while our robot is going at a walking pace. A walking pace for our robot, if you scale off a human walking pace of about four miles an hour and kind of use the height as a scale factor, we're looking at about like 60 miles an hour, but I'm giving it, I'm saying 40 because we'll be underwater. So can we find enough horseshoe crabs at that speed? Delaware Bay, while not huge, it's not too small either. It has an area of about 750 square miles. If our search diameter is a 50-foot area around us and we're going 40 miles an hour, 
we can cover about 0.378 square miles per hour of crab searching, which makes means it'll take 1,984 hours to search the Delaware, Delaware Bay, which, if we're working 40-hour work weeks, adds up to 50 weeks. So, amazingly, with our with my giant space alien robot and the whole world of possibilities, I've crouched myself a steady 9 to 5 with two weeks vacation in the year. Nice. <laughs> But, of course, how much does it pay then? So, how much blood am I getting from these 725,000 horseshoe crabs that I've harvested? When they extract from a horseshoe crab, they extract about 30% of the horseshoe crab blood, which generally leaves them okay. They say about, like, 30% of the crabs die in, like, the harvesting process, but they don't really check on the ones they release back in the wild. They're just kind of assume they fi- they're fine, and I'm going to meet that scientific consensus. But anyway, they take 30% of the horseshoe's crab blood, which is about 300 milliliters of blood on average. If we nab all 725,000 crabs at 300 milliliters, we end up with 57,457 gallons of the stuff. So if you remember that I mentioned this blood is worth $60,000 per gallon, our annual salary for our 9 to 5 job is $3,447,445,283.27 per year so it's gonna be a wild two-week vacation (laughs) each year and uh that's what i would do with a giant robot you you wouldn't kill tom cruise you wouldn't hunt him down no they tried that and died so i don't need to do that i mean he does have a two-week vacation i mean i could hunt down tom cruise in my two-week vacation but he's pretty slippery also like he blew one of them up with grenades so i'm like what if i accidentally pick him up and accidentally put him in the basket, and he accidentally has grenades again, and then he throws them in, and then I, my whole, my whole, you know, robot is dead. That's sad. Chris, what did you do? What did you do that's better? Did you hunt Tom Cruise to death? <laughs> uh, I did not. So the movie that I did was Minority Report, which is a very good movie. It is from 2002. It's also a Steven Spielberg movie. And if you don't know anything about the movie, it's basically about, uh, like, pre-crime. So they have these people that are like precogs and they can like see crimes before they happen and there's this whole organization that like arrests people before they actually commit the crime and the main character is tom cruise and he his character's name is john anderton and one day like his face shows up in one of the precogs committing a murder and he has to like figure out what's going on and like run from the authorities and part of that or like a big part of the movie is uh, people being identified by their eyes. So this is demonstrated in one of the scenes where Tom Cruise is walking around, like I think it's like a shopping mall or something. And there are cameras scanning his eyes as he walks and he gets like personalized ads for him based on that. And then he also has to like scan his eyes to get into work and stuff. But the thing is most of the movie, he's a fugitive on the run. So what he ends up doing in the movie is he... Uh, he needs to like change his eyes and he ends up getting like an eye transplant or like removing his eyes and taking someone else's eyes and he assumes the role of mr yakamoto (laughs) and then there's this whole scene with like spider robots while he's like blindfolded and he's trying to like navigate without his eyes and stuff it's really intense and it's it's a good movie but i want to see how realistic this actually is so I started with like the identifying people with their eyes thing. There are actually a couple of methods to do this. So the first one is retinal scanning. So an eye's retina gets blood from a complex system of blood vessels. And this in retinal scanning looks through the pupil of the eye 
into the i think the retina is like in the back of the eye so it looks through the pupil to see the retina and then it analyzes the unique blood vessel patterns to identify someone and the blood vessel patterns are actually not genetic so like even identical twins will have unique patterns and it's actually the most precise and reliable biometric other than dna that we know of at least and uh, the National Center for State Courts estimates that it has an error rate of 1 in 10 million. It's pretty good. And retinal scanning is, has been used by the FBI, the CIA, NASA, and in prison. So it's a pretty well-implemented and like developed method. The second method is called iris recognition. So the idea is pretty similar. I think it's more widely used than retinal scanning. But the way it works is it, instead of looking at the patterns of the retina it just looks at the patterns of your the iris the iris is like the color part of your eye um, and there's like if you zoom in on it you can see all those like wavy pattern things yeah it's kind of gross when you get too close to those <laughs> i think it looks cool it does look cool but also it's like it, it, it depends on the level of zoom because it starts off like ah eyes are beautiful and you go a little closer you're like "Ooh, eyes are cool and then you get a little closer and you're like Ugh, <laughs> eyes are kind of gross yeah I mean, eyes are gross, that is true. But iris recognition is also a very reliable way to identify people. And you can actually read the patterns from like a further distance than retinal scanning. And uh, 1.5 billion people are actually enrolled in iris recognition systems. Apparently, 1.2 billion of those people are citizens of India. So I guess India is like a big user of this, I guess. So yeah, those are the two methods. And... Clearly, identifying people using their eyes has been real for a long time. And based on how it works in the movie, so like he's walking around a shopping mall and there's just cameras on the walls, like taking pictures or like scanning people's eyes from a distance. I feel like they're using iris recognition, especially because when it happens, they're like their irises light up. So I'm going to go, I'm going to say that they were using iris recognition. So theoretically, if you replace your eye, then yes, you'd be able to elude the authorities because they wouldn't be able to identify you. In the movie, they replace the entire eyeball. I want to see if there's a such such a thing in real life. So it's actually a pretty complicated thing, just because of the way the eye interacts with the brain and like all the nerves and stuff. But they are researching it. So Dr. Kia Washington has been researching methods for a whole eye transplant to restore vision in visually impaired people. It has not been successfully done yet but she is still researching it and she actually got a six million dollar grant from the u.s department of defense joint warfighters program so i guess they're sort of they might be a thing in the future i'm not sure but nothing has happened yet so i was like okay if you can't replace the whole eye what if like what are other like eye operations that you could do that could help really only the current the only current eye-related transplant that you can do is a cornea transplant. So the cornea is the clear layer that's in front of your iris. So like if you look at your eye from a profile, your eye is a circle, and then the cornea is like a little dome on the front of your eye. It like protects the iris. And the cornea has no pattern or anything on it. It's just transparent. So nobody uses the cornea to identify anyone. So it's not really useful in terms of what we want to do. So... Next, because there are no, like, ways to, like, transplant anything with the eye that could help, I looked at other options, and the natural option that I came up with are contacts, because you put them on your eye, it covers your eye. 
Oh yeah, get some get some get some anime Sasuke Sharingan contacts. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> There's some pretty cool contacts out there. I hate the like the all black contacts. It just makes the white of your eyes all black. That's creepy. But yeah, so normal contacts shouldn't really impact the effectiveness of iris recognition just because they're see-through. I think it is a little more complex than that, and they do interfere a little bit, but for the most part, like, it's fine. The bigger thing is those color cosmetic contacts, because obviously it covers the iris. Now, in the movie, if it was retinal scanning, I don't think it really would affect uh, this, because all the retinal scanning used to do is look through the people, and it doesn't cover the people. So it wouldn't be an issue if if it was that, but I do think it's iris recognition, and in real life, this is actually, like, this has a term. It's called iris spoofing, where you basically fake some, you fake your iris or you take someone else's identity using their iris pattern. And iris recognition technology is actually getting better. So, like, you can read the iris patterns from a further distance now. But that also enables people, it makes it easier, basically, just to steal someone's iris pattern using the same technology. Man, I'm already worried enough about people stealing my goddamn wallet. I don't need to worry about people stealing my eyeballs. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you basically just have a camera from a distance and they can, like, see the pattern if it's if it's good enough, which is kind of scary. And this is actually a pretty big problem with iris recognition in general. They've been trying to solve this problem for a, for a good amount of time. I found, like, one paper where they were talking about, like, advanced algorithms that can sort of identify uh, a fake iris, but it wasn't really entirely reliable and there really is no perfect solution right now. This is still a pretty big problem. Spoofing an iris is very easy to do and the most common way to do it is with contact lenses. So in conclusion, I don't know why Tom Cruise had to like replace his whole eyeball. He could just put contacts in (laughs) and like (laughs) a quarter of the movie could have not happened, but whatever <laughs> i also hadn't really thought about it until now but why do they do like eyeball scanning instead of just face scanning because like we can already do that yeah that's true i mean i think eyeball thing is more reliable probably probably also he does change his face in the movie too so that he does i was that's part of the reason i was thinking about it was that they already had that in there so why did he change his face he could just put on a mask then the face recognition doesn't work anyway <laughs> yeah Dude, get some accessories. <laughs> you didn't have to get a whole head transplant. <laughs> Takeaways that Tom Cruise needs to goddamn accessorize. All right, well, that got very close. We got very close into eye surgery territory, which I was getting very uncomfortable very quickly. <laughs> but luckily, we segued into or just get contacts. So I was very happy about that. And with that sigh of relief, we can move into our Would You Rather segment of the show. Ben, are you ready for a Would You Rather? Yes. Would you rather slow down time or speed up time? I think time as a whole, like everything happens a bit faster or everything takes a bit more time. Including everything for you? Everything for you, everything everywhere. Like the constant time, the rate that everything travels through time, I guess, is... I guess your perception of time? Yeah. 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 Like is everything slightly in slow-mo or is everything just a bit faster? And this is something that's just like a thing that we are making happen for the rest of time, not something we can control, right? Yeah, let's go with that one. The other one might be an interesting question, but let's start with this one. Yeah. Okay, so if it's going to be permanent, oh, if it's going to be permanent, 
I mean, this seems pretty clear to me. All right, explain. I would say slow time because, like, you have more time. You can process things. Like, everything, you live the same age to the same age, but you can just, like, process every situation better. Yeah. You know, like, like you, even though you're, like, using reading as an example, you're reading at the same speed, but you're technically reading faster in terms of the overall world, right? Yeah, like, if you're about to get into a car crash, you can, like, process that you're going to crash easier, whereas if time is going faster, you probably crash. You effectively get superhuman reaction speed. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah, no, I don't see the other. I don't see those. What if what if it was if it's controllable, things get a little bit different. Yeah, let's say you can let's say you can control either and it's like half or I don't know, double, half or double? Double? Yeah, half or double. So if it's controllable, you technically still can have the reaction speed thing, but you have to be expecting something to happen, so it's not just like it's not spi- yeah, it's not like a superpower. Right. Exactly, yeah. Which is still good. And you can still do things like, you know, you can, if you're, you know, doing stuff for work, you can, like, type and read insanely fast and things, right? Like, that's all cool. But for speeding up time, it's not as cool still. It's still not as cool. It's more useful. You can, like, you can, like skip plane rides. Yeah, if, you have, if you're, like, waiting for the bus, it takes half as long. <laughs> this is really not worth giving up the, the slowing down time thing. Yeah, no, I was, I was, like, I was like enticed by the speeding up for, like, because just... I'm constantly distracting myself by doing other things. Like, well, if I just could, like, speed up the thing I'm supposed to be focusing on, I'd probably do a better job focusing on that thing. <laughs> like, oh, you know, I'll be, like, cooking or something, and I'll be like, oh, well, if I could just, like, speed this up a little bit, maybe I would actually, like, pay attention to my cooking and not just, like, get distracted and, like, start fiddling with shit and then messing up my dinner somehow. I think you'll just be worse at cooking. No, I'd be better. I, if, if cooking took half as long, I would be better at it. Because all you have to do is wait. But if you do stuff while waiting... You can mess with things. I guess if you just, like, stick something, something in the oven, then, yeah, all you have to do is wait. Well, even, like, cooking stuff in the pan, like, the hardest thing is, like, like browning something. You're like, I'm going to put it on this pan, and I'm not going to touch it for, like, three minutes. And it's, it's exactly the wrong amount of time, because it is long enough that you're bored, and you're, like, just, like, staring at it, and you get restless, but not so long that you can, like, leave. Also, your oven is, you know, there's fire in your kitchen. You should probably be around for it. But I feel like if you, if you're, if you can slow down time in your cooking, then you You'd be able to process it fast enough that you could multitask. So while you're waiting for it to brown, you could do something else. Also, we have very different cooking styles because when I'm browning something and it's taking three minutes, I am dancing in my kitchen going, mmm, the whole time. So, like, <laughs> that's how I say <laughs> occupied. Mmm, 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 <laughs> yeah. Listen to that. Smell that. <laughs> mm. my, me and Sarah tend to cook together. Our cooking style is put things where they need to go, and then one of us leaves the room to, like, sit on a chair somewhere for no reason, because we, we're we both so bad at, like, just letting things sit. We're, so, we're both so impatient while cooking. Anyway, I agree with Chris. I think it'd be worse at cooking for things, but I guess, I don't know. I guess in that exact situation, yes, I get, you're right, but... <laughs> I don't know. I guess, I guess for me, it's like, my gut, my initial gut reaction was, I feel like there's more times where I'm impatient than overwhelmed by how much time I have to do something. I mean, it's a fast time better useful for anything other than if you're waiting no no i don't think it is <laughs> well it makes like bad you get through bad situations and stuff faster like i don't know i guess it feels like a subset of waiting it is a subset of waiting yeah but we do a lot of waiting in our lives <laughs> you could be a really really good truck driver because <laughs> you could go twice as long as anybody else but you 
Yeah, you'd have a really slow reaction time then. <laughs> That's okay. You're just fucking in cruise control. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I feel like I can make a decision here on both versions of this question. Spoiler alert, it's the same answer, and it's slowdown time. <laughs> yeah, same for me. Yeah, I'm I'm also gonna go with slowdown time, but for some reason it feels wrong. Like it's <laughs> logic like it's, it's like yes, yes, begrudgingly yes, and I can't think of a single reason why it's not right, but at the same time, I don't know, just I feel like I wanna speed things up. I, I agree with you that I legitimately when I was first like asking if it was something we can turn off and on, that I was like, Oh, then there's actually a reason to pick going fast. And then I started about for like a second and I was like, There's not. There's really not. Honestly, I kind of just want to challenge mode life and just be like, all right, let's see if I can do this, if I can handle this at 2x speed and see how it goes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there you have it. If you had the power to speed up time, you wouldn't have to wait a whole week for us to release another episode. But actually, there's a workaround. If you go to our Patreon page, www.patreon.com slash absurdhypotheticals and become a patron become one of our good hypothetical pals then you don't have to wait a whole week for the episode there's a whole bunch of bonus episodes sitting there waiting for you in the patreon for just one dollar a month and there's lots of awesome cool things that we do in those bonus episodes so go check that out also it just directly supports the show and that is very very meaningful to us if you want to non-financially help the show times are tough we get it you don't have all the dollars to give to us Give us a question. We love to get listener questions. Send us a, an email, absurdhypotheticals at gmail.com. Or if you're on YouTube, you can just leave it in the comments below. And we are happy to receive and answer listener questions, and we'd love to get some more. So that would be also a great thing that you can do to become part of the show forever. And as always, if you enjoy the show, please, 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 please leave us a review. Tell your friends. Get the word out. Just help spread the good word of the show and get more people listening. Again, if you have, if you use one of our weird facts at a party and people are like, why do you know that? If your family is giving you judging glares for knowing so very many facts about flying planes as and what geese can do to them, blame it on us. That way you are not embarrassed and more people can listen to our cool show. In any case, for all of us stuck in a normal time stream, we'll have to wait well, one week until we answer the following question. Which movie mentor would train the best hero? 